It was a June night in Chicago, and the 1933 World's Fair was on dazzling display. Its theme of invention and innovation was everywhere. New technology, cultural attractions, art, and music. The music director of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra wanted to make a contribution to the fair, known as the Century of Progress, which would be fresh and totally American. So this night, history was made as the CSO played a classical score composed by the first black woman to ever have a symphony performed by any major U.S. orchestra. And she was a Chicagoan. Her name was Florence Price. Jason Mark here, and recently we got a question from Shari Ebert. She's a retired RN who's now a full-time musician in Kankakee, just south of Chicago. She knows some things about Florence Price. Earlier this year, her symphony performed a Price score, and she's also tuned into an unusual find. In 2009, a couple renovating an abandoned house was shocked when they found pages and pages of handwritten music and notes all belonging to Florence Price. I live in Kankakee, not far from where her music was discovered in this abandoned home. So I was very interested to learn more about Florence. There was so much of it, in fact, that it took scholars a decade to sift through and organize these papers. And a few years ago, the musical works in this discovery started to be released to the world. Now Florence Price is beginning to be known more widely, and symphonies everywhere, like Shari's, are playing her music. Which made Shari want to know more about the composer herself and her life in Chicago. So she reached out to Curious City, of course, asking for more. And we turned to contributor Ariane Nettles. She's going to help us tell Price's story and her impact on classical music. That's coming up next. Do you need a break from the news? Well, my friend, Nerdette Podcast is here for you. Our show is all about delight. We laugh about what's happening in pop culture and feature thoughtful interviews with fascinating people. We even have a monthly book club that you can participate in. I could just go on and on about it. I loved this book. It was an experience, I'll tell you that. <laughs> I discovered authors I had never heard of and I'm really happy that I did. Come hang out with us. Listen to Nerdette wherever you get your podcasts. On that night at the 1933 World's Fair, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra performed Florence Price's symphony at the massive Auditorium Theater. It was the centerpiece of the concert, and the audience was full of excitement. The Auditorium was the world's largest and grandest theater. 
it could hold almost 4,000 people. And reports of the night say it was packed with both black and white Chicagoans. The CSO's music director was Frederick Stock, a German conductor and composer. He felt Price's symphony reflected a new American experience. He knew Price's music because she'd recently won a prestigious music honor for black composers called the Wanamaker Award. Florence Price was 46 years old that night. She wore a long white gown as her music blew the audience away. Not only was she the first black woman composer to have this kind of opportunity, her music itself was monumental. Price was a reserved person, so it must have been overwhelming for her to be called back to the stage over and over again, because the applause just would not stop. The Chicago Daily News reported that there hadn't been a response that huge since the 1880s. The Chicago Defender said the performance was culturally significant and good for the race. Progress was made that night as Chicagoans came together and gave unfiltered appreciation to a Black woman and her composition. Dr. Karen Walwyn is a concert pianist, composer, and a scholar of Florence Price's music. She says Florence's music is intentional. It pays homage to her experience as a Black American, often leaning into music of Black dance and celebratory traditions. So a lot of the dances were back in the motherland that were used to celebrate the ends of wars, to honor the kings, to bring in new births, weddings, etc. And these rhythms traveled across the seas and she would capture these rhythms. Dances like the juba. That dance started in West Africa and traveled with enslaved people to the Americas. And the cakewalk, which began in the mid-19th century. The poignancy of this is that she's sharing and telling the story of her ancestry and combining it with the European models, the structure, the way harmonies are treated and developed. This beauty and sophistication that we hear in Florence's work begins with her upbringing in Little Rock, Arkansas. Florence B. Smith was born in 1887, a decade after the end of Reconstruction. During that period, Black families had been able to seek out new educational opportunities close to them before the Civil War. Her mother was a music teacher, her father a dentist. So the Smith family was solidly middle class, her parents were known for their elegant dress, their nice home, their polished manners. In the tight-knit Black community, Florence was the quintessential child prodigy. At four, she had her first piano performance. At 11, she published her first composition. And by 14, she graduated from high school. She had a list of career accomplishments before marrying Thomas Price in 1912 and moving from Atlanta back to Little Rock. 
after the couple started to grow their family, Florence Price taught piano. She didn't see herself as a serious composer, even as she tried to hold back the urge to do great, large works. Instead, she wrote small pieces she could teach her students. But she couldn't hold it back for long. In the 1920s, she started entering and winning competitions. Then, in 1927, Florence and Thomas moved from the South to Chicago with their two daughters. Violence against Black people had forced many families to look for other places to live. Thomas Price's law practice also had started to decline, so there wasn't much keeping them in Little Rock. The family moved into a home on 38th and Calumet in the city's Black Belt, the area we, of course now, call Bronzeville. The Price's house was right in the middle of the vibrant neighborhood, bustling with people. The gray stones that lined many blocks were overcrowded, filled to the brim with multiple families and boarders. But the closeness of this concentration of people made the community tight in other ways. It was exploding with Black energy and culture. In many ways, it reminded Florence of her hometown of Little Rock. It was here that she truly found community. The musicians in Chicago welcomed Florence Price when she arrived. They embraced her. They worked together with her. Elmer Simpson, Walter Gossett, uh, Walter Diet. There were many, many classical musicians who were here that became her community. And she worked right with them. Barbara Wright Pryor is part of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra's African American Network. I spoke with her at CSO just hours before the orchestra would play another Price work for the first time, her third symphony. And when she arrived in Chicago, it was the black renaissance actually going on. All types of music and art were being performed and exhibited throughout. She met with a multiplicity, I'll say, of musicians, black musicians here in the city. Going into the 1930s, all kinds of creative people, writers, visual artists, and musicians were drawn to the city. They found some work playing in black churches and clubs, and they collaborated on projects of their own. They gathered at places like the Hall Library on 48th and Michigan, drawing Black folks of all disciplines and even visitors stopping through the city. This community collaboration was critical because Black creatives were often shut out of white mainstream institutions. So Black people came together to build their own groups, their own places, and their own opportunities. It was also around this time, in the early 1930s, that the name Bronzeville became popular a reflection of the bronze-colored skin of Black people who lived there. As part of groups like the Chicago Music Association, Florence was drawn into a network of Black supporters. Picture a handful of musicians crowded around a kitchen table, handwriting copies of Florence's scores so she could mail them to symphony conductors. In return, Florence gave talks and lectures to help other Black musicians hone their skills. 
These were classically trained musicians, but traditional classical spaces didn't always welcome them. Florence herself was mostly rejected by conductors around the country to whom she mailed her compositions in hopes they'd play her music. As Florence once wrote in a letter to a conductor, quote, to begin with, I have two handicaps, those of sex and race. With those words, Florence spoke for her fellow musicians who struggled to support themselves with their music. She became acquainted with them because they had studied music and had music degrees, but because of the segregation problems, they could not get employment in the music industry. So many of them became church musicians, organists, pianists, conductors. Uh, Some went into jazz. Some worked at the post office, the United States Post Office, at night and then performed their careers during uh, the weekends at churches. So it was an exciting time. Music was the bomb, as they say. Even as she found her artistic community, Florence's home life changed dramatically. According to a biography by Ray Linda Brown, Thomas Price was physically abusing his wife. Florence divorced him in 1930. Florence had to make money to care for her daughters, who were 9 and 14. So she played piano and organ in churches and in silent film theaters up and down the stroll, the stretch of State Street between 26th and 39th Streets. And they had to find a new place to live. The Bronzeville community supported Florence Price when she left her husband and moved in with Acela Bonds and her daughter. Bonds was a fellow pianist. She and Florence had become friends through the city's black music organizations. After moving in, Florence became teacher and mentor to Estella's daughter, Margaret. Margaret was 26 years younger than Florence, but her career followed a very similar pattern. The same night the CSO performed Florence's symphony at the World's Fair, Margaret became the first black instrumentalist to appear with them. With Florence as her guide and friend, Margaret Bonds will go on to become one of the next great composers of the Chicago Black Renaissance. Florence Price and Margaret Bonds are now two of the names people mention most often when talking about Black classical music from this time period. But they weren't alone in this work. That's something many experts emphasize. Hello, my name is Dr. Samantha Ege. I'm a musicologist and concert pianist, and I'm also the Lord Crew Junior Research Fellow in Music at Lincoln College, University of Oxford. Ege says the mix of cultural influences created its own kind of American music, a musical genre that feels like a fusion of influences because the Black musicians of the time infused their music with their own experiences, their African history, their Southern roots, their classical training. Well, I'll use Florence Price's word there, um, or phrase, I should say, melting pot. You know, she said um, something along the lines of, I believe uh, a music very American and very beautiful can come from the melting pot just like the nation itself has done. That melting pot is present in the works of other Black composers who were active in the 1930s through the 1950s, especially Black women composers. Like Florence Price expressed, 
black women musicians in the Chicago Renaissance dealt with both racism and sexism. Yet, Ege says black women remain the foundation of this creative community. Women like Florence and Margaret, along with other musicians like singer Nora Holt, composer Irene Britton-Smith, and pianist and composer Betty Jackson King. In this era, we hear the influence of the spirituals. We hear the influence of blues and jazz. And we also hear the influence of these women's um, classical music training. So we hear symphonies, we hear sonatas, we hear all of these classical inspirations. And it really is a melting pot of styles. So even if these names aren't familiar to you, you will hear something that is familiar in this music. Like the Baroque, Classical, and Romantic periods, the Black Chicago Renaissance is a special and unique period in classical music. And so I'm really proud, actually, as a pianist to be able to say, okay, well, yeah, we have these other periods in classical music, but we also have the Black Chicago Renaissance, and the music from this time is phenomenal. When we look back at the work of Florence Price and her contemporaries, it's easy to see how their music was more than good enough to be played by grand orchestras. And that didn't often happen. But when we sit back and realize how little attention Black musicians received outside their community at this time, it does not mean these musicians weren't successful. It does mean that they had a different way to define success, one that they defined for themselves. I think it's a mistake to think that because she wasn't having her music played by every great American orchestra during her lifetime that she felt failure or she felt disappointment. Up next, Florence Price's contributions and what she left behind. Stay with us. Do you need a break from the news? Well, my friend, Nerdette Podcast is here for you. Our show is all about delight. We laugh about what's happening in pop culture and feature thoughtful interviews with fascinating people. We even have a monthly book club that you can participate in. I could just go on and on about it. I loved this book. It was an experience, I'll tell you that. <laughs> I discovered authors I'd never heard of and I'm really happy that I did. Come hang out with us. Listen to Nerdette wherever you get your podcasts. Florence Price lived in Chicago until her death in 1953. It was 50 years before her papers were discovered in that abandoned Illinois house. And then it took experts a decade to sift through and organize those papers. Experts I talked with give much of the credit to scholars Ray Linda Brown and Barbara Garvey Jackson. Through that work, more of Florence's music is available and loved It offers us insight into Chicago and the extensive Renaissance period Florence experienced and enriched. But she doesn't only belong to us. 
Don't look for Price to disappear. I think I think she's here to stay. Douglas Shadle's a professor of musicology at Vanderbilt University. He says people are drawn to Florence Price's music, but also to who she was as a person, as a musician, and as a teacher. The reason for this is that the music and her story together, they reach people. He says each time her music is performed anywhere in the world, Price's music gets an instant standing ovation. It's just that good. But as we learn more about Florence as a person and how she and others contributed so greatly to classical music, the work becomes even more compelling. I keep imagining Florence Price, surrounded at that kitchen table by her friends and fellow musicians, laughing, talking, as they help transcribe her scores or letters on piles of blank paper. That community, too, is part of Florence's story. It's the kind of story that I think is all too rare in classical music, where we see the composers as these hidden figures occupying secretive spaces. And, and certainly, the act of composition is very difficult, and it can seem uh, superhuman. But we have to remember that these people are human. They have human needs, human struggles, human joys. And encountering a composer and her music that we also encounter as a person, I think makes it all the more meaningful. Lyra Downs is a pianist and a scholar of unknown American voices in classical music. It was the emotion in Florence's work that first grabbed her. The very first piece of hers that I played, and this is going back about 15 years, was her first fantasy. And that um, really just grabbed me because it was the first time that I'd heard a piece, a classical virtuoso, like sort of post-romantic piece of music that's based on um, a melody from a spiritual. It's based on Sinner, Please Don't Let This Harvest Pass. Um, so I played that piece for years and just, you know, everywhere I went, it would cause this incredible reaction that was, you know, very much like my own, just this emotional connection with audiences. experience this emotion ourselves, it's easy to also feel regret. We assume that because we wish Florence was more recognized in her own time, we believe she didn't experience triumph. Downs encourages us to dismiss that thinking because it's wrong. And we know that she loved doing what she was doing. She never stopped. She never stopped writing music. Within her community and in her time, Florence was valued, and she knew it. Her community gave her her flowers. It's just that today, so many more of us can recognize her value as an inspiring teacher, a dedicated musician, and a world-class composer. And as a changemaker, who in 1933 brought a Chicago audience together and roaring to its feet. Something she's still doing around the world.
Ariane Nettles teaches journalism at Northwestern University. Curious City is supported by the Conant Family Foundation. The show is produced by me, Jason Mark, and Joe Dassault. Kate Cahan and Jesse Dukes edit the show. Maggie Civet is our digital and engagement producer, and Adriana Cardona-Magigat is our reporter. To see photos of Florence Price and much more, check out the story we put together at wbez.org slash Curious City. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you back here next week. Before we start the show, we here at Curious City want to let you in on a little-known fact about WBEZ. 89% of all our funding comes from community support, including contributions from curious listeners like you. If this program has changed how you see Chicago, please consider supporting this program at wbez.org curious. Thank you.